Shall we start? Sure. What's the topic of today? I think, uh, you know, we, we, as probably most people have realized, have gone about this fairly spontaneously in the past. And uh, you and I talked yesterday and, and really felt like it was time to talk about COVID-19 and, and kind of how that's impacted our industry and our own businesses and what our outlook is going forward. I think both of us are probably by nature pretty optimistic people, but this has been an interesting time to be in the sheep business and be in California, hasn't it? Yeah, it definitely has. Um, it's definitely a challenge and very obvious. The bears are scaring away the bulls right now. One reason why I, I think it's important we talk about this now is because when you, at least when I've been reading the news, there is so much misinformation, exaggerated information mixed in with the correct information. And yeah. I'd like to hopefully take a little bit of time and try to clear some of that up today. And then maybe even the next one we do, we can actually add to this and dive deeper into some of those uh, nuances that we couldn't really fully bet out today. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good opportunity because really when this is a really good opportunity, you learn so much about your weaknesses during times of crisis because that's when they're shown. And that's why you have risk management is to help buffer against these crazy unknown circumstances. And no economist in the world would have predicted that people would shut down everything due to a virus. Yeah. And yeah. so none of the, none of the companies that are struggling now are struggling because they were poor business people, but it is an opportunity for us to look at our production system and see where the weaknesses kind of are and hopefully learn from this for the future going on. And the next one's going to be different. Yep. Yep. And I think there's an opportunity, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're seeing this or you are, there's an opportunity to look at the businesses that are thriving right now in all of this and, and learn from some of the things. Some of it is just that they happen to be in a segment of the economy where, where they can stay up and running and there's a big demand for what they do. But, but I think there's some value in looking at what they've done successfully as well to be able to, to work through this period. I know it's your turn to lead, but I'm chomping at the bit to ask the first question. <laughs> <laughs> Have that. I, so Have that. Uh, my first question is there's a lot of news articles out there about uh, the livestock industry and the real attention grabbers are the ones where they're euthanizing livestock. Right. And so I think the first thing we ought to do is, is talk a little bit about what's really going on and what, set what types of livestock that is happening in and what types of livestock it's not. Yeah. And I, that's a, I actually had that conversation with a, a woman earlier today who was very interested in, in kind of local food systems. And her, her question for me was relative to the sheep business. Well, what happens if you just hold on to everything that, that you've got now for another year until things are back to normal? And it was an interesting perspective that I, I think is unique to the agricultural world and to the livestock world in particular, in that um, we make decisions in our sheep business. You know, we made decisions last September that we wanted to have lambs born in February to be able to sell in June. 
And that's kind of the planning process that took place for us. Not knowing that come June, we weren't gonna be sure where or even if we'd be able to sell those lambs given what's going on right now. So I think there are some differences, at least in, in my understanding in different types of livestock with that. I think with cattle and, and sheep and goats um, as ruminant animals, we have to make decisions so far in advance about breeding and about kind of where our markets are that our options are different than they might be for somebody that's raising poultry or raising hogs um, because that turnover is so much more rapid with, with chickens in particular, but also with hogs. Um, A lot of that's also due to the integration of the, the way the production systems lined up where yeah. you have basically the pork and chicken farmers are contracted out multiple years in advance and are growing the livestock for the plant and it's all a vertically integrated system where right. these animals you know they they know what they're going to sell to that packing house two years before the animal's even born they have all the soybeans bought all the corn bought yep. all the piglets everything's all hedged and put out all there genetics are provided by the company all of that exactly yeah. that system is where you are seeing the euthanization of animals yep. and it's because they had to slow down their chain speeds in the packing houses and shutter certain packing houses to a large percentage of the industry which created that 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 uh, that 10 20 percent whatever the number is that can't go into the following week or the following week or the following week you can't compound those because right. there literally is because they're so planned out so far ahead they can't um they can't just continue to roll them because there's just not the ability to market them right right whereas in beef and lamb it's different well and i would put put this question to you we've talked about this a little bit in the past about the diversity in the in the lamb industry and in the sheep industry um this is probably going to come as a great shock to most people who will be listening all 10 or 12 of them but um we are a fairly independent bunch as an industry and sometimes that can be a a real benefit to us sometimes it can hold us back but how do you think um, our independence and our diversity has impacted us in this time, in this period? Is it a strength for us? Yeah, I think diverse opinions are always a strength as long as you have a table to sit down and discuss honestly between parties. Um, I think when you refuse to listen to the diverse opinions, that's when you start to fail. But I, I think the, the big, if you would have asked me pre-COVID-19, um, what what you know what business model is more um, sustainable long term i i could have made a really good argument that the uh, vertical integration you see in poultry and chickens is a really attractive business model yeah. however this is showing the weaknesses of that kind of a system yeah. and it's showing the strength of the lamb and beef side of the you know type of a system now, all systems have issues, but uh, just the fact, I mean, we're livestock people. And if you go and you ask a farmer to kill every animal on his ranch, just 
look at what happens with the suicide rates in Australia when they did that to the sheep industry there. Yeah. I mean, that you break their hearts, you break yep. individuals' hearts, and we can't. I'm so proud of our industry that we're not at that point, that we do care about the livelihood of those animals. And it's not that the hogs and chickens don't care about their animals. They have to do that. Otherwise, that animal is going to die on its own. So it's, it's, a, it's a real tragic situation. But thankfully, we're not in that spot. So I think the, you know, this is, is maybe going down a rabbit hole. We'll come back to it at some other point. Um, but I think the, the mental health aspects of something like this, um, you know, I, I, during our big drought, I did a lot of reading about the Dust Bowl years and about what ranchers went through in that time period. And I think knowing how much I love what I do, how much you love what you do, I can't imagine being in a spot where I'd have to destroy my life's work like that. And I think that's, that's something we're going to have to be aware of and cope with coming out of this with, with our, our colleagues that are in other parts of the livestock business. I think it will take a toll. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely something that needs to be on the forefront. As we navigate through this as industry organizations, they really need to start looking at, you know, that mental health support, especially um, as it, as this uh, matures and if it doesn't correct. Um, so, in the beef and the lamb industry, so the pork and chicken are kind of separate. Yeah. Um, I think you kind of have to look at those. They're, they're very related because they're cheaper proteins. They're vertically integrated. They're very systematic and they're very forward contracted. So they're very different than... And, and they're not ruminants. I think and they're not ruminants. Yeah. That's part of that, that. That fits all in that bigger piece. Yeah. So I think that's important when you start reading news articles and start hearing these terror stories when you see a news article that says livestock's being euthanized around the country and they show a picture of a cow and then you read the article and it's a bunch of pig and chicken farmers quoted you need to separate those two because they are very different yeah um, so then going to the the beef and the lamb side you have this really unique situation where box beef price is through the roof or you know set set some records here during COVID-19 Mm -hmm. uh, box lamb cutout values set a record last week, but yet you have the the uh, weekly slaughter numbers collapsing, and you have the cash paid to the farm gate collapsing. Yeah. And so, I don't want to spend too much time on beef because we're sheep guys, and um, <laughs> but I mean I do have a lot of cows, so I, I'm worried about it. But yeah. to me, they're 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 similar problems on different scales. Yeah, right, right. And so I think we can use the lambs to start kind of trying to dissect a little bit about exactly what's happening with these, you know, the, the you can call them rumors, arguments, realities, and, you know, false realities about who's making money, who's not making money, who's a bad actor, who's not a bad actor. Is there price gouging? Is there not? All those kind of things I'd like to really kind of maybe step back and look at the lamb industry and see, I don't know if we should work back or how do you want to attack peeling that onion open as to what exactly is going on in the lamb industry? I think, I think working from the, the dinner plate backwards is probably a, a good way to do it. And I, I think, I think because you and I have different 
marketing channels that we pursue, I think it'd be interesting to look at how um, that that differs perhaps in our own businesses too. So maybe you could kind of start start from that dinner plate and work backwards in terms of your product and, and describe what's going on. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to actually probably start a little further back than that. But uh, with the lamb product, the lamb is consumed by food service. They usually break it up into food service, which is restaurants and, and cruise ships and those kind of things. And then, um, and then, and then uh, grocery store outlets, retail outlets. And then you have your, your direct sales are kind of the three main avenues and I'll leave direct sales out because that you do, you know that uh, through and through. So I'll concentrate on those two. One of the most important things to remember is not all packing house or, or packing businesses are equal. Every portfolio is different and unique based on how they wanted to set it up. Some were more exposed into food service than others. Some were more exposed into retail than others. And depending on how the company was exposed will directly affect their current performance and their current ability to go out and buy lamb on the open market and, you know, put, have throughput. The other major issue that we have in the, that's causing some of the price declines, I think it's really important to lay out that there is a, a facility, one of the larger facilities, there's, there's four main facilities in the U.S., two in Colorado, one in California, one in Michigan. Yep. The Michigan uh, facility was shut down because of some COVID-19 positives, and it's been shut down for three weeks or so. Um, then you have of the two in Colorado, the throughput's been slowed down in both of them. One of them was due to um, to uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy filed by the parent company. And then the other, or in California, is uh, that one has maintained their, their volume, but, um, but nothing impressive. And so just some interesting fact numbers as far as volume numbers. And I know this gets wonky for people listening. You're not supposed to talk about numbers, but... Um, <laughs> During the, for the first 15 weeks, this year versus last year, we are down 46,345 head. And that's nationally? That's nationally. Our peak of our national kill, or the the most we tend to typically process, is about 40 to 45,000. So we're down an entire week's worth of, um, of supply or throughput in the first 15 weeks. 42,000 of that 46,000 were in the last four weeks. And it completely tanked. We went from 40 to we're about 30 now, uh, 30,000 head a week. Uh, The way we're kind of projecting or the trajectory, uh, we should be around 100,000 head down from year over year by about week 19, week 20. Wow. And so um, that's, a, that's a huge hit as far as volume going through the system. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but that one, that volume number explains a lot about why the market and the cash side is crashing. I think the supply demand economics on that end of the pendulum are pretty easy to understand. Right. So now going back to the plate, so you serve the, your your customers are these restaurants, which completely went to zero, or your restaurants where there's grocery stores that went through the roof. 
Yep. Well, you when you sell into a restaurant, you package that meat differently than if you sell it to a grocery store. You're delivering different cuts, you're delivering different presentations, you're delivering different products. And so your whole fabrication line and distribution is set up completely different. So if you're supplying food service, you can't just shut the, you know, flip a switch and start delivering that meat into a grocery store. It just, you cannot do it from a logistics standpoint. It takes too much capital to change over your equipment and it takes too much time to develop those markets. And vice versa is the same too. So, uh, and then the other side of that is different cuts sell into those different areas. So your, your racks and center cuts, your real high-end dinner plate items, those sell real well in food service. They don't sell as well in the grocery store because if you're going grocery shopping, you're gonna pay $70 for a rack. But if you're gonna go get two chops at a fancy restaurant, you'll pay 30 bucks a plate, 40 bucks a plate. So um, there's, a, there's a big difference there. Um, and so I guess I covered a lot in that. So I'll turn it over to you to talk a little bit about the direct marketing and kind of where that is. Cause there has been some boom in direct sales to households and um, so there has been, you know, in, in this, what we kind of call as an industry, this non-traditional market where we are selling directly to consumers. Now, all of the farmers markets here where I am in the foothills have stayed open and there are lamb producers that sell at those markets who have reported to me that, that their lamb sales, if they've got lamb, have gone through the roof. Um, people are, are really stocking up. Um, I think there's an interesting conversation to have about frozen inventory and, and kind of we know when it's frozen when the companies have it. We don't know how much frozen inventory is out there in people's home freezers. And I think that's something that, that's hard to grapple with from a, a market reporting standpoint. But those direct markets have really been booming. I was talking to a person um, here in California that does a lot of direct marketing um, to ethnic markets, largely um, in Muslim communities. That's a little bit different type of lamb. You know, we have sold into that, into that system with a smaller lamb with some success in the past. Those smaller lambs are still worth a fair bit of money compared to, to what's happened in the, the finished lamb market. Surprisingly, because of that ethnic demand, um, there apparently are not enough goats available for sale in California anywhere. Um, the same, the goats that weigh what my lambs will weigh when we sell them are likely to be worth close to $3 a pound. In June. Wow. And that's a supply and demand issue as well. But I, I think in terms of the direct markets, there is some relationship to what's going on in the, in the restaurant and retail trade in that most people who are direct marketing also have to rely on those other outlets to some extent. And there is some some likelihood that we'll follow those markets a little bit. I think the issue on the direct marketing end is that little producers like me are a real pain for the processors to deal with. And I think necessarily they're having to look at their systems to make sure that they are, are meeting their core customers' needs and their core suppliers' needs and not taking on somebody that wants to bring three or four lambs a week at the expense of ha- being able to, to continue to meet those other needs. And so I think there's, there's the potential for some bottlenecks for these direct markets as well, partially driven by the fact that, that we all play by the same food inspection rules. And so we've got to have access to that USDA inspected 
processing to be able to direct market as well. And I think that that can be a potential challenge. So the, the one of the other factors that whenever you talk about markets, a lot of people always criticize and complain about the imports and how the imports are crashing our markets. Um, I want to do a screen share with you real quick and show you this. Um, you can go ahead and work on getting that on and I'll, I'll ramble a bit. Yeah. But um, I, I got a, I got a graph today that illustrates what's happened with the imports over the last, since this COVID outbreak has happened and our market has completely collapsed. But with that, so has the imports. This is U.S. lamb imports. And here in January, we had, um, I don't know, between 15 and 20 million pounds being imported. And it's been literally collapsed to less than 5 million pounds as wow. of March. And so, wow. to you know, that's just one thing to remember is the effect of imports on our markets could be negative or positive, whether they go up or down. It, economics is... Economics are very dynamic, and that's one thing this is really showing is how dynamic they truly are because there are so many fundamental indicators that should pose positive news for the you producer and that feeder, Yeah. but all of the actuality is negative. Right. And so it's really, it's a fascinating little statistic there that, that, uh, that uh, I wanted to make sure I highlighted. Um, that's a remarkable, remarkable graph, and I, I, it makes me think about what, what we may see as we come out of this, when we come out of this in terms of domestic markets and production. What, what do you think the fall will look like if you had a crystal ball? Really hard to project that far out with the economics being so unstable. And when you look at the lamb complex, the whole production system, there is a lot of negative pressure when you look at the basics of we have 3 million sheep in the U.S. that go through annual annual inspection or annually counted, and there's a chance we don't have a home for 500,000 to a million of those. And that those economics are very troubling. You add the pressure of the labor issues that are going on right now for different uh, ranches. You have the... Uh, the chapter 11 in that large processor, you have the pullback of the other processor that's backed the supply up. Um, there's a producer up there that had a supply agreement with that facility. He's been selling his lambs on the equity market auction. Um, I think he just sold some for 80 cents a pound for fat. And it's because they canceled his contract because they canceled it due to a force majeure act of God. Those are very, very rarely that those clauses are enacted. But yeah. when you have that starting to happen, that's flooding the market with product. We actually started the year very current in our feedlot. If you look at the Colorado feedlot inventory, we were well below where we were a year ago. But in the matter of the last four weeks, we've reversed that and typical year will be trending down throughout the summer in the Colorado inventory. Well, we, once COVID-19 hit and we started um, backing things up in mid-March, it completely reversed and now we're above normal. And so we were about 10, 20,000 head below normal. Now we're above normal and going to continue to climb. And so that really poses some long-term risks. And that, that actually opens up a really good thing I wanted to talk about. So the way pricing works, 
you can look at it forward or backwards, but the U producer that goes out and buys a U and raises a U is speculating based on what he thinks he can sell a feeder lamb for. Mm -hmm. That feeder lamb buyer is speculating based on what he thinks he can get a fat lamb sold for. And that fat lamb buyer is speculating what he's going to get a retail price for. Now the problem when you start speculating that create, when the problem in pricing occurs when there's too many unknowns and it's too far out. And what has happened with COVID-19 is the cost of production at the fat level. So the, the, between the feedlot finishing and the getting the product to retail has had way too many unknowns enter into that because of the loss of half of the traditional market, which is the yep. food service side. Yep. And so the next step of this that I wanted to quickly go through some more numbers was if you take a, is, is how efficiencies work in that, in that, that packing plant and how, uh, how reduction of chain speed is a compounding cost much more than what you would think it would be. So if you have, if you're processing a hundred head per hour, I just using raw numbers for simplicity mm -hmm. and your fixed cost. So your cost to have these people on the floor is $5,000 an hour. That's $50 per head is your cost. If you just reduce your chain speed 25%, that means you're processing 75 an hour on, and it costs you $5,000 to run that. That brings your cost up to $67 a head. So a 25% reduction in chain speed is a increased cost of 34%. Mm -hmm. And these older traditional plants, which we have a lot of in the United States, and if you've ever been through a beef packing house, you'll know what I'm talking about. These old facilities, as they've mechanized them and put things on, it's cramped the quarters and made people, they're, they're very close together on the line. So when you reduce that chain speed and you're spreading people out six feet apart, you're, you're slowing that chain speed down, in some cases, more than 25%. And so that, that just compounds your cost per head. And that's, a, that's an expense that you won't pick up in any um, report whatsoever. So you see the box beef cut out or the box lamb cut out costs and you see it through the roof. Well, you have a huge difference in expense just because they're not processing the same number of animals and their efficiency um, equation has been flipped around. And if you can't control your efficiency equation, you have no, you have no idea, you, right, just on this 25% example, there's a 34% swing in your cost of production. Yeah. That's huge for yeah. a business that's running on a 10% return. Yeah, um, and without a, a way to pass that cost along. I mean, that's well, the way is to buy it cheaper, right? Exactly. And if you have a large supply or sell it for more, and they're selling it for more on the retail to make up for that, and they're able to buy it cheaper if you have those accounts. But right. if you don't have the accounts, all of those people you said you were going to buy their animals for, you can't buy them anymore because you have no market to sell them into. You have no place for them to go. Yeah. And so it creates this kind of perfect storm where you have rising retail prices. I've heard the retail prices kind of leveled off a little bit. 
Um, but the other side of this is the all falls have disappeared too. The all falls have made up five, ten percent of the profit margin. You know, I mean, of a per animal. I mean, that's a decent value for these these uh, these processors. So no all fall value, no no leather value. Your international yeah. commerce is exchange has completely disappeared. And so you just add all these things together, and it creates this giant unknown. So when you say what what what's a lamb going to bring next fall? Um, right now, I don't think you can really even put a price because there's a large percentage of those lambs that might not get sold, which is a very scary thought from an industry standpoint. Because the other thing you mentioned at the very beginning is once a lamb gets over 12 months old, it's no longer a lamb and right. it cannot get sold into lamb channels. And that's right. the other major issue that we have that, that uh, beef doesn't. And regardless of the market, where the market is at that point, that animal is a drastically discounted animal in the marketplace, even in good times. Mm -hmm. um, we go from lamb to mutton, that's a, that's a huge discount in the market. You know, I had, had this conversation with somebody from Wyoming earlier in the week, thinking about how, how we think creatively in a time like this, um, in light of all of those things that you were talking about. And I think one of the, the struggles that I see, at least in the folks that I've talked to, is that that uncertainty creates a lot of anxiety. And in some cases, it's almost helpful to have a bad, have a, a negative decision because then you know what the rules of the road are rather than the uncertainty. Are there some things that you think would be helpful in terms of those kinds of decisions as an industry, whether it's a meat industry decision or an ag industry generally decision that, that would help create a little bit more certainty in a time like this. Yeah, I mean, certainty is a, certainty's at a premium in today's world and um, nobody could have predicted this was gonna happen. Um, and, and it was completely shocking and took the whole world by storm. And so to think that that the livestock or the agricultural industry would be exempt from this is um, is kind of a false hope. Yeah. But I do think that it's a reminder that when you when you run your own business, that you have risk management is a big part of running a business. Yeah. And the reason you do risk management is for situations like this. You don't plan on you don't buy animals and plan on losing money on it and having the market go to heck you 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 manage your risk so you can afford them to go to heck right, right? and so it's really kind of a, a wake-up call i think to remember to reflect on your own uh, risk management your own risk tolerance and um you, we as a company we actually uh we we walked away from about uh, 1,300 acres of irrigated pasture this last fall. And the reason we did it is because we felt our risk tolerance didn't justify the risk we would take in stocking that with speculative animals. Even with hedges, even with insurance, even with contracts, all those things, we walked away from that because we didn't feel as a company we could, could handle uh, a major downturn in the market, whatever the cause. And now sitting here looking back, we are so blessed and thankful that we made that decision. And we didn't allow the pride of 
having more acres than the neighbor or being able to be the biggest cowboy on the block. We didn't allow that to inform our decision. We looked at that risk profile and made that decision. And I was just talking with Jeff and John today about how proud I am of us as a company to be able to do the analysis and recognize that and be willing to make that kind of a decision. Because that was a hard decision to make. I mean, you're walking away from um, really profitable ground on a, on a, on a, on a flat market, on a good market. But it was just one of those situations where when we were looking at our risk, we decided it was too risky. So back to like, how do you, how do you stay positive in a, in a market like this? Um, well, one, your first loss is your cheapest loss often. And so I don't know many businesses that'll be super profitable this year that didn't have aggressive risk management in place. And those companies that had aggressive risk management in place probably aren't profitable in the really good years. So you are super profitable. It's a, that, that's a whole balancing act, but don't be afraid to sell them cheap to get out from under them. Uh, Don't get talked into exaggerating the loss. If you have an opportunity in an ethnic market to sell them for a decent value, do it. You know, if you have a, you know, don't, don't, um, but then at the same time too, um, you know, communicate with the people that you work with year over year over year. Keep those communications going because your relationships mean a lot in times like this and people will help each other out, you know, that are, that are friends and things. And so, don't be afraid to communicate. Don't be afraid to talk and don't be afraid to be honest with yourself. Don't, don't lie to your banker I mean, the banks are set up to support people through these kinds of things because this is a, I mean, they, what they passed $2 trillion in relief, almost yeah. three, I think through it all yeah. just to help people. So go out and talk to people. Don't um, think you're going to just rough your way through it on your own, you know, really get out there, engage, talk to you, talk to your FSA offices about what programs are available. New ones are coming out all the time. Um, but just, you know, stay, stay involved, stay engaged. There is going to be relief. And I know there's a lot of negative economic pressures, but there's always positive opportunities in these negative situations because no company is built exactly the same and no company has the same risk. If you can start doing home deliveries one at a time, now might be a great time to do that. Uh, develop those kind of markets. You take a cost of product that now is worth nothing. Well, it's a lot cheaper to go ahead and maybe um, custom harvest a handful of those and try some marketing. Yeah, it's, it's a really good opportunity to try some of these things that maybe you've been wanting to, but then at the same time, remembering your risk tolerance and not extending yourself. The worst thing you can do, I think, is to just think that it's just going to get better tomorrow and just can, you know, whatever you call it, trying to pass the buck down the road rather than trying to be adaptable and react, you know, and proactive. Compounding works both ways. It can work for you and against you. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And I think the, the idea of communicating internally and, and externally is really important in terms of risk management. You know, I think, uh, I think one of the things that we've done here in the foothills, um, is we've got this network of folks that are all willing to share details about their businesses with one another um, with the idea that, that it helps to have somebody else, somebody else's perspective on it. And so as an example, this last fall, we were, we were short a feed um, 
after breeding and before we would normally go to the hills and mentioned that to this group. And lo and behold, somebody had some extra alfalfa that we could go to and bought us, you know, four weeks of grazing where we could rest our hill ground that much longer and, and grow some more feed there. I think many times our industry, because we are individualists, coming back to that idea a little bit, we're, we're embarrassed to, to admit those things to our neighbors or our, our colleagues. And I think it's, it's important to have those kinds of support networks out there in terms of a risk management strategy. I also think, you know, looking creatively at what these animals can do and where they have value beyond um, the retail shelf, you know, and, and one of the areas that we've really seen a lot of growth here in California is in targeted grazing for reducing fire danger. Um, maybe there's some time opportunities now for folks to, if they've got the, the animals and the infrastructure in place to, to take advantage of those opportunities too. Yeah, absolutely. It's time to get creative and, and focus on diversifying your income streams. Yep. You know, don't, don't, um, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make is work all year and sell one day. I, I think it's really <laughs> important that you spread that out, that you, um, you know, you, you really, if you're, if you're torn on whether you should uh, retain ownership on some and run it through the feedlot at a potential loss or whether you ought to just take the loss right now, maybe you need to sell half and keep half. Maybe, maybe you need to do partnership deals. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to get creative yeah. and, um, and just, but I think the main thing is don't be, uh, don't sit back and be reactive. You gotta, right. It, my, my grandpa, my, one of my grandpa's favorite sayings that he told me when I first started is, is that if there's nothing going on on the ranch, Ryan, go out and shoot something and make some work for everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's, I think that's it's like the point is, it's a hilarious way he said it, but the point is, is that you gotta, you gotta, there's always work to be done you got to find it. You got to get go and, and figure out what exactly that is and, and uh, go try to, yeah. try to get it. Don't, don't let things just happen to you, make them happen. Well, and I think another way of saying that same thing, I think about when I'm, I'm, and I'm no dog trainer by any stretch, but when I'm working a young dog, I make more progress when the dog is trying to do something, even if it's making mistakes than I am when the dog is afraid to go to work. Yeah, And I think that's similar in this type of situation that, that we make progress when we're making decisions, even, even in face of this uncertainty. Whereas if we're paralyzed and afraid to do anything, I think that's when we have more significant problems as a business or, or as an industry. What, uh, one last question for you. Has this changed your day-to-day -day work at all? And if so, how? Yes, it's changed my day-to-day -day work. And it's not so much at the beginning, but now it has. I feel like everybody is starting to crack a little bit under mm -hmm. this shelter-at-home order. Mm -hmm. Everybody's a little more stir-crazy. My kids are getting antsy. Everybody's getting frustrated with things. And so it, there's just a lot more, it seems like there's a lot more edge a lot of places, even myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then as far as my day-to-day -day schedules, I do, I'm working from home more than going into the office, but I still go into the office. We're, so we're still working, I'd say, full speed um, because, you know, we're, we're uh, 
we're blessed to be in agriculture where we have to provide food for the nation. And uh, in that duty, I'm happy to fulfill it. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm proud of the work we do and, and we're going to keep going um, regardless of the, you know, the, the risk we have to do the job. So um, kind of like if you're a nurse, you got to go to work, you know, you yep. can't, you can't not. And, and it's difficult and hard and there's a lot of frustrations. And I mean, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a terrible year on the books, but we still, we're going to produce the food. We're going to get it to market and it's going to be cheap, but we're going to do it because that's our obligation to the country. And I know every farmer that I talk to is pretty much the same. Uh, what about you? You know, I, I, I would concur that, that things have changed since this first started. I think there is more of an edge and more, more anxiety um, than there was maybe when we went into this. That said, kind of the day-to-day -day work, um, making care of sheep is, is pretty similar to when it's normal times. I think we do talk a little bit more about planning the work so that we can maintain some safety for the people around us. You know, many of our, as I mentioned before, we operate almost entirely on leased pasture. And many of the folks that we lease from are in that at-risk age group. And so we're real cognizant of that, um, maintaining some separation and distance from those folks. But I think the other thing that I've realized, and I, um, I find myself just devouring news every morning when I get up to see what's going on. And one of the things that I've realized is that the kind of work that we do outside with livestock is so unique in today's world that people don't understand it's actually safer, I think, for us being outside doing the kind of work we do than it would be working an office job in that regard. And I, I'm really thankful that I get to do that on a daily basis. I think the other thing that's changed for me is what we're doing here. You know, we've had some time, I think, to do some pretty interesting things collaboratively with folks in other parts of the state or other parts of the world that I hope we continue after this is all over. Cause I think there's a lot of value in, in understanding how to do this more often, sharing ideas and perspectives. And I think that's a really, that could be a silver lining in this cloud down the road, I hope. Yeah, I think there's a lot of positives that have come out of this or that will come out of this. Um, I mean, it's certainly easy to focus on the negative side of things, but yeah, this, I mean, this little podcast thing that we're doing, your Instagram lives have been fantastic. You know, you've had Joe Fisher on and a couple of, I, I really enjoyed those. And some of the contacts that I've made and just discussions that you have with people, you know, everybody's craving human connection so much more now that we're connecting. Yeah. Uh, and it's, that's a really, really good thing. And uh, there, there are positives. We will get through this. It is going to turn around. They are opening up parts of the country. Yep. The opening and the quarantines and all those things, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out on the meat side because every state's going to have different regulations, which means that every packing facility is going to have different compliance regulations. And yep. those are all going to be a, a fascinating, fascinating test in itself. You got a dog there. Second. Hey, we'll, we'll edit this out. Ah. <laughs> the joys of border collies. I love border golf. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of positives. A lot of a lot of good things to look at. 
it's easy to be negative, but you know, you gotta, you gotta, uh, if you're going to be proactive, you, you need to be positive because that yeah. way you can, and that doesn't mean you ignore reality. You have to be realistic and you have to be honest, but, um, you still have to go out and make it happen and we'll be around. So. Yep. 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 So one last question for us as we wrap up, how can folks ask us questions that they'd like us to answer on future episodes of this? That was an excellent prompt question. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess the best way would be to, um, they could message me on Instagram at California Sheep Rancher, or they could, I'm sure, message you. Absolutely. At, at Flying Mule. Yep. At Flying Mule Farms or at Flying Mule? At Flying Mule. Yeah. At Flying Mule. Um, or they could leave a comment in the um, YouTube comments and we get those as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and we're on well, Apple podcasts now. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So Apple. we'll put, uh, we've got our Instagram, um, information on the, the end credits. So yeah. if you want to send us a message, ask us a question, that would be great. We'd love, we'd love to get questions back. Absolutely. And as this week goes, if anybody listens to this has something they want us to kind of focus on or unpack a little bit more next week. I, I think we'll probably continue this conversation a little bit more about how, how the markets and why the markets are doing what they're doing. I, I know there's a lot more detail we can get into, yeah. but um, if there's anything anybody want us to kind of focus on, I, 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 we'd love to have a, have a, have a question. So. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Until next time, it's Sheep Stuff You Can Know with uh, You Should Know with Dan Macon and, uh, and Ryan, Ryan Mahoney. Mahoney.